Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on July 18th, Lord's Day Service. text this morning is the book of Job, chapter 1. We'll read the entire first chapter and then I'll read the first three verses of Job chapter 38. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when the sons of God and daughters, excuse me, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine with their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone escaped to tell you. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. And then, Job 38, 
Beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Let us pray. Our Father and God, You alone possess all power and authority and might and dominion. Before You, we humble ourselves. We trust ourselves to Your good and wise providence. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. What passages of Scripture do you turn to when you're in the midst of suffering? The Psalms are common. Or perhaps some of the encouraging portions of Isaiah, like chapters 12, 25, 40 through 43. Most people don't go to Job. When you face suffering, you don't necessarily want to hear about someone who you know has it worse or had it worse than you ever will. You know, it never makes you feel better when someone pats you on the back and says, well, it could be worse. This is a difficult book. It's not easy to deal with. It's raw. It's haunting. It's a book about God, man, and suffering. To read it, not just skim over it, but actually read it, is to come face to face with the greatest affliction a man can endure. Save our Lord on the cross. To hear His anguish the severity of his friends, and then the final answer of God is emotionally and even spiritually unsettling. We like our theology tidy. We like nice bows on it where it's clear at the beginning and clear at the end and you can see the ribbon that wraps it and we know what's coming. Because of God's blessings, we live in a society largely shielded from much physical suffering. As poverty has been reduced and medicine has improved, the type of suffering we face has changed. But the consistency of suffering has not changed. As long as evil is in the cosmos Suffering will be there. An honest look at just the first chapter of Job introduces some tough ideas. We see in Job 1 a man who it says, the text says, is righteous before God and he is abundantly blessed. He is the wealthiest man in the East, Scripture says. And then, this man who enjoyed so many of God's blessings, we see that God Himself draws attention, the attention of Satan to Job. Has that ever bothered you? We want to think 
that Satan's just looking around. He says, oh, there's a successful one. I'm going to pound him. No. Scripture says that God said, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I mean, immediately we're forced to conclude that God, while not the direct cause of suffering, he is not the author himself. He is not the author of evil. He's not the cause of the direct cause of suffering, but he is, in this case, the initiator, in that he brought the attention of Satan to Job. We don't like that. We want to believe that God brings only good. So when it comes to Christmas gifts and bonuses at work and all of the things that we like, we are so glad to give praise to God. And we should. We should be thankful for those good things that God gives. But those are not the only things that are from Him. If He is sovereign, and He is, all-powerful and all-knowing, we have no other choice than to submit to the fact that He grants evil. And even as we read with Job, that He is the one who directed the attention of the evil one towards Job. The scene is clearly that Yahweh is in control. That is, the God of heaven and earth rules. And he is, there's not this, this balance of good and evil. No, God Himself, the sovereign true God, He rules over all. But, even though Satan answers to Him, God does not keep His children from facing trials. You see, our God is Lord over our suffering just as He is Lord over our blessings. In chapter 1, Satan takes everything from Job. All that he physically possesses, even his children. It concludes with a great wind, a powerful wind that comes and collapses the house where all of his children are and they're all killed. And Job's response, which it, it, this, it demonstrates his righteousness, is to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For most of us, that's an impossible statement to make in those circumstances. Then in the next chapter, the, the scene, the heavenly scene repeats it, and this time Satan is granted permission to take Job's health. He can't take his life, but he can take his health. So Job himself is reduced to ashes. He, he has physical boils, great infirmity all over his body, and he is in mourning. I mean, if you did not read 
the beginning portion, if you didn't see the heavenly courtroom scene before you, if you didn't read that, you would be tempted to ask yourself, as I am, where is God in this? How could He, how could he do this? How, how could He allow? Where is God in this whirlwind of suffering? Have you ever asked that question? In chapter 3, Job then curses the day that he was born. He wants to die. He sees no purpose for his life because he has lost everything. He has nothing left except for his wife who says, you just need to go ahead and curse God and die. Essentially, a backhanded way of suicide. Curse God, and then hopefully He'll just go ahead and end the rest of your life. His friends, His so-called comforters, come to Him. Thankfully, at least, they were quiet for seven days. That was the best thing they did for Him the entire time, is they stayed quiet for seven days. And then they began talking. His friends all explain something about why Job suffers. And Job then in turn answers them, always trying to justify, to vindicate himself. His friends say it's because you're wicked. It's because God doesn't like you anymore. And, you know, answers like this. Again, not the type of thing that you look for. But Job, of course, says he is innocent, that he has not committed acts that deserve this punishment, that, that deserve punishment at all. Now, one of the underlying pictures in this book is that of a courtroom. We see it played out in the heavenly realm with God who is considered the judge, and then you have an accuser, Satan, a prosecutor who comes before God and who says, when, Job, when God points Job out, the, Satan accuses. But then that's also played out in the earthly realm where you have Job's friends, you have three witnesses, which is biblically enough to convict. Three witnesses speaking against Job. Now I'm going to tell you what. Think about what happens in this text. If you take away the heavenly picture, if you take away the fact that it begins with God saying that Job was a righteous man, if you didn't see that, if all you read was that these things happened to Job, and then you read the friends who say, it's your fault, you are under... you're, you're wicked and you deserve these things, you might be tempted to think they're right. Three witnesses. I mean, we've all seen people who are obviously guilty who try to defend themselves and they think that they're right. We know that people try to justify themselves when they're wicked, but we know that's not the case with Job. And Job, sadly, has no one to vouch for him. No one speaks on behalf 
of Job. And probably, to me, one of the saddest portions in this book, aside from all the affliction Job faces, is in Job chapter 9, beginning in verse 29, where he says, If I am condemned, condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes will abhor me, for he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him. He's talking here, Job's talking about God. He, the he there is God, Yahweh. And that we should go to we should go to court together, nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take away his rod from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Job has no one. No one. It's Job versus the world. He wants someone to argue on his behalf and no one steps forward. It's only more accusation. Now we may be tempted to to, to ask, when we look at Job, some of his statements can sound, yes, a little bit self-righteous. We say, this guy's really, you know, he's protesting too much. Why does he work so hard to justify himself? But before we condemn his response, let me ask you this. What do you do when you suffer? How do you respond when trials and afflictions come that you did not bring on yourself? Have you ever called out for vindication? Have you ever thought, why me? Why am I facing this? I didn't deserve this. I didn't do something that brings this affliction on me. I mean, it's not like I signed up to go 12 rounds with a boxer and I'm I'm asking, why does my head hurt so much? I don't understand. No, that's not that's not that. It's I'm trying to obey God and I'm I, I'm pummeled. That's Job. When you read Job's story, you can't help but want him to have vindication. You want him to receive the verdict that he is indeed not guilty. And that will come. You have to read all the story. It will come. When we face trials, we want there to be a reason. And not just any reason. We want there to be a reason I can understand right now. We we can face suffering as long as I know that there's some purpose behind it. Because... You know this, sometimes it feels very random. I mean, you read the book of Proverbs, I heard one one guy say that, you know, in in the wisdom books of Scripture, Proverbs is is the little kid who's about, you know, 16 in a sweater vest and bow tie who has all the answers to everything. Now, I'm not making light of Scripture, please understand. But, but, you know, it's, it's very clear. It's you do this, you receive this. You're not lazy, God will bless you. Stay true to you, you know, train up your child the way he should go. When he's old, not depart from it. 
It sounds very easy, but then when you read Ecclesiastes, you see it's not always this one-for-one equation, and then you read Job, and it really messes with your head. We are like Job. When we face trials, we want there to be a reason. And there seems like oftentimes there's not. Why did my church situation fall apart? Why? Why did your marriage fall apart when you've worked to make it stronger? Why do your children die or your children stray? Why do friends, people you've counted on for a long time, turn their backs on you? When you give yourself faithfully to something, when you strive to build as much as you can, you lay everything you have, you sacrifice it all, and then it doesn't work out. We say there has to be a reason. Give me a reason. We all have plans for ourselves. They're good plans. They're prosperous plans. I mean, we all tell, tell in our minds, we, we have this, this ongoing story about how whatever we're facing, how if, if we just adjust this and change this, then we come out victorious and smelling like a rose in the end. We play this story out. And whatever the next twist and turn is, we, we're adjusting. We're always telling the story in our mind for how I will be vindicated. And the world will know my righteousness. Like Job, we want to know why. And like Job, we ask, where is God in this whirlwind of suffering? Have you ever noticed before that when God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind in Job 38, but that's not the first time a great wind is mentioned in this book. When is the first time a powerful wind is mentioned? In Job chapter 1. When the wind comes and tears down the house. That's the first time the wind comes. And we're tempted sometimes to think that God is not a part of that first wind. He's only a part of the second. But He's Lord over all the winds. It is in the midst of this difficulty that we need wisdom. But it's a unique kind of wisdom we need. It's a wisdom that comes only through suffering. And growing in this type of wisdom is what the book of Job is about. So if I told you that you could have wisdom that would allow you to look at any situation in life, and have rock-solid peace and joy through it. You could have calmness of mind that would give you stability, and even when, because still decisions in the midst of suffering are required, and we could still make wise decisions through a trial. If I said you can have all of that, and the only price you have to pay is you have to suffer in submission to God, would you do it? Would you say, oh yeah, sure, sign me up. No, 
We wouldn't do that. We don't like suffering. Yet it is through our suffering in submission to God that produces this heavenly wisdom. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Wisdom gained in suffering is part of what gives us this weighty glory. And it's not something we would pursue on our own. James 1 says to count it all joy when you suffer. Because the testing of your faith yields patience or endurance. And we're told to, to let this work of our, of our tested faith, have it, let it complete. Let it grow to completion because it makes us mature, complete people. And so James goes on right after and says, if any of you lack wisdom, that is particularly the wisdom needed in suffering to ask God, who gives freely to all who ask, but you must ask in faith, believing that God will give you what you need. This whole book, the whole book of James, emphasizes patience or endurance through trials. And it talks about how this wisdom, it traces the theme of wisdom and suffering and how it purifies us because it's only through facing this, this pain and, and affliction that we can see sometimes the sin that's been lingering. It's how we can see weaknesses that we did not know were there. Famously, C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone. It's how he gets our attention. But let's go back to Job. In the midst of his trials, when Job called upon God, to answer, and he did. He, he asked God why. We see that God answered in Job 38. But he did not come in a still small voice. We like it when he comes to us in, the, in a still small voice because somehow it doesn't feel very threatening. We like when God is not threatening. We like Him to come and pat us on the back. And that, that, that's fine, okay? That, that's good. But sometimes He doesn't. He comes in a whirlwind, or as we in the South would say, a tornado. Now I want you to picture, you've been asking, why, why God, will you please answer me? And then, it's amazing, because it, right before chapter 38, there's, some, there's references to, their, to the weather, and, and you, you get the sense when you, when you read a few of you know, the chapters leading up to it, you kind of hear, you can almost hear this whirlwind in the background. There's references to it. So it's like this storm was building leading up to this point, and then in 38, the whirlwind comes, and, and uh, Job forgets about all of his friends at this point. I mean, they're, just, they're not even in the picture anymore. 
and God speaks to Job. So if you had a tornado who came right before you and potentially even engulfed you, and, and God is speaking to you, how are you going to respond? I don't want to tell you how I would respond. It would probably not be with strength and courage. And then the words, and this is where the authorized version does a really good job. The Old English says, gird up your loins like a man. This is the Almighty talking. But instead of God answering Job with telling him why, he asked questions of his own. So God says to Job, who are you to question what I do when you have no understanding? Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Where were you when I fashioned the world? Do you know how I put bounds in the sea, on the sea? Can you hang the stars or control the sons of God, the angelic hosts in their course? If we can't comprehend, brothers and sisters, how God established the cosmos, there is no way we can understand why He does exactly what He does in every single situation. That is what He says to Job and what He says to us. It can sound scary at first, certainly. But our God governs the lives of billions of people, of all plants and animals, cells, atoms. And that's just on the earth. Everything is intricately woven together. Every relationship that we have is is governed by God. And He is displaying to Job in Job 38 and 39 and 40 His sanctifying work in the cosmos. And we can't understand this, much less describe it. Our suffering is a part of how God works. Not only in us, but through us to others. God is not just in the whirlwind. He speaks wisdom to us in the whirlwind of our suffering. When you're suffering, when you're facing affliction, God is speaking to you through what you face. What are we left to do then? When we see God's great power, that He rules over all these things, that He is bringing many sons to glory, as He says in Romans chapter 8, we must submit our situations, our pain and our affliction to God, which is exactly where the Apostle Peter steps in. In 1 Peter 5, we know the passage, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you. He will raise you up in due time. Confess that you don't understand why you're facing what you're facing. But trust yourself to God who judges righteously. And then Peter goes on to say, and often what we, what we, we separate these, two, these verses. 
But Peter goes on, the very next verse, after saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. I want you to hear me, please, and especially if you're facing trials right now, Peter lays it out. God cares for you. That's why you can cast your burdens on Him, because He loves you. It's not just like another person saying, I love you. This is the one who did all those things that he told Job about in Job 38, 39, and 40. The one who controls every force of chaos in existence. He loves you. He cares for you. And He is the one who can bear what you are facing. No matter what your trial is, God's loving hand is with you. Though you feel stripped bare, He is caring for you. And nothing comes to you that He is not ordained to make you more fit for heavenly glory. You can trust Him because He cares. But finally, there's one more riddle in Job that we've not answered. Job longed for someone to argue on his behalf. And I hope you you could hear the pain in his voice when he says he wished he had an intermediary, a mediator, someone who would go between himself and God and explain his case. But what Job called for, God eventually answered in the person of His Son. When you suffer when you face affliction and you don't know why, you have an advocate. You have one who argues your case before God. Because when we face trials, we are essentially in that same courtroom setting. Okay, We have the accuser who comes and who accuses us before God. And we have our judge who we know loves us But sometimes it feels like there's no other witnesses on our behalf, and there's plenty of witnesses, sometimes including our own conscience, who says, see, you you don't have what it takes. You're guilty. You deserve everything that you're facing, plus more. And out of the darkness, then, of that trial, the door opens up, and the Son of God comes in, and He says, Father, witness for the defense. Right here. At that point, the case is over. It's your justification is purchased right there. Jesus came to earth and suffered that he might be a faithful high priest to us. When you face suffering, Scripture tells us that Jesus is pleading your case to the Father. Jesus hears you and He says, Father, not only is this your son or your daughter, but because not only of your love for him or her, because of your love for me. Answer. Hear. What Job lacked, what he desperately called out for, you have because Jesus is on your side and pleads for you. So then how do we respond when suffering comes? Go to God. Ask for wisdom. Call upon your mediator 
who likewise suffered and who knows your trials. Remember that God made you and He cares for you. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. When the whirlwind of suffering comes, don't fear it. God is in the whirlwind. Listen and receive the wisdom He has for you and the promise that He is bringing you to glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your great and precious promises. May we receive them and may we be strengthened with all might by Your Spirit in the inner man. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.